This is Discussions on the Firewater Network, where we talk to those crafting the future of the spirits industry. And now, here's your host. This is Zachary Farley. Joining me today is John McClellan and Kellyanne Woods of Gillespie's Fine Spirits in Squamish, British Columbia. John and Kelly, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to such a beautiful location. I want to talk about the booze and everything you guys make here, your fantastic products, but I also just kind of want to stare out your window for a while <laughs> and look at the beautiful mountains behind pretty us. Pretty ridiculous, pretty spectacular. Right? Yeah. yeah, we've always felt it's like our guardian angel somehow guided us to this point in time because yeah. we went through some troubles before finally coming here. Mm. This is almost like the silver lining to those troubles, yeah. you know, because it was an arduous time. But then we wound up here and we're like, like, wow, we have completely lucked out. We're going to definitely talk about why you came here and everything. But as we sit here, I can just see why you did. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your distillery. What are you guys building here at Gillespie's Fine Spirits? What are you making here in Squamish? We're making local awesome booze. <laughs> <laughs> That's our marketing shtick there. Yeah, there. Local, but, awesome uh, booze, okay. local awesome booze. Local awesome booze. Guy Kawasaki said, you need a mission statement that everybody in your company will know and understand. So he's like, Wendy shouldn't be this big, huge rambling they should just be healthy fast food so we were like local awesome booze you know, okay and the idea of being local sustainable and stealing some business back from corporations yeah that's our motivation very good <laughs> stealing business from big corporations awesome <laughs> so i assume you guys weren't born into the distilling industry grew up in scotland grew up it's in almost Sc- as close okay. <laughs> so maybe you did that. All right. yeah, yeah so how did you come into it how did you learn about distilling why start this Two parts to that story. I guess when we were kids, we got taken around some of the Scotch distilleries. And my parents are keen sailors and it's an island on the West Coast. And we toured around some of the bigger distilleries there when we were young. And so from a very young age, we were introduced to the idea of distilling. But more recently, just a friend of mine who was into more as a hobby than anything. And okay. he kind of introduced me to the idea of it. And like so many you people... You know, you could make this your own. <laughs> yeah, mm. you could. Well, it's, it's interesting because that's the first question people often ask is like, oh, well, how do you do that? And that was my, I was like, oh, well, how do you do that? And then after you look into that aspect of it, it's just fascinating all the different kinds of booze that there are and all the different, there are so many people doing the same thing, but so many different products come from, it's like a hundred different ways to skin the same rabbit, right? But Mm. you wind up with a hundred different things. And that's what's really interesting is just the diversity that there is, the, the craft scene coming. It's just interesting how many more things will come along that are fascinating and interesting. Mm-hmm. So, so, And I think when John and I got together, the relationship and the business flourished alongside of each other. And I come from sommelier background and mixology background. So mine was more the actual stuff in the bottle and his was putting the stuff in the bottle. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was an interest. Like I always like to say, this is a hobby that got out of control. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now you have a company, you have things on a label, you have a distributor. It's not yeah. a hobby any longer. Oh, absolutely not a hobby anymore. No. You guys seem to have is... a lot of fun doing it though. Oh um, gosh. Yeah. We wake up every day feeling so blessed that we get to do what we love and do it together, you know? Very cool. Here in Squamish, for those who don't know, and I didn't before coming up here, you're located between the famous ski resorts of Whistler, British Columbia, and also the metropolis of Vancouver is just an hour south of you. Did you seek out this location because it was situated between these two great tourist areas, people, places, or how did you wind up here? Because it is 
something of a small town. We'll probably touch on that later where some of the challenges of getting into the business. But when we took stock and went, well, where do we want to be? And John just said, you know what? I want to be somewhere that inspires me. One of the first places that came to mind is Squamish. We like to say it's the next Portland. You know, the way San Francisco got really expensive for people to live in. So all of the artists and all this more boutique-y, interesting type folks moved to a smaller place, which yeah. was Portland. And we feel Squamish is just, it's got one of the youngest populations in Canada. And it's just along this beautiful highway. It's on the ocean, which a lot of people don't know. And it's also just in this unbelievable snow-capped mountain area. So from Mm. a business perspective, I think we looked at it and went 9 million people drive through here every year. But we also wanted to localize and be in an environment in a community that would support us. And Squamish is just an amazing community in that they really support their local folks. And that's what we wanted to be part of. Nine million people drive through here. If you guys could get 1% of that, right? Then you'd be pretty good. <laughs> We'd and, be pretty yeah. good, yeah. 1% <laughs> so of those people, That business yeah. plan is pretty easy to write on some level. Yes, there's foot traffic through here. Or there's traffic coming through. And there's local um, bars and restaurants yeah. and stores in Vancouver. But then all the people driving up and down the highway, people look at Squamish as, oh, well, that's where I stop for gas. Or mm-hmm. that's where I grab my Tim Hortons coffee. There's a vibrant community full of amazing mm. things to visit and stop and do here. So I guess on that end then, the local community, community, do they support you? The local governments, for example, they must be happy. You're now helping Squamish become something more than just where I stop and get gas. You're now a tourist destination. It's like stay in Squamish, come in and take a look at our new distillery that we've Absolutely. just Absolutely. Squamish is known as the recreation capital of Canada. So mm-hmm. you have the aspect of all of the outdoor recreation, but you also have House Sound Brewery here. The gondola is now situated here. There's a great little restaurant just up the Paradise Valley Road called Fergie's. So we're all creating this amazing community for people to come into. So are you the first distillery then to open in Squamish? Yes, yes, absolutely. And yeah, you're right. People here have been incredibly supportive of us. The tourist aspect was almost secondary to when we were looking outside of Vancouver. We both lived in Vancouver and when we were looking at places we would like to go, there's a number of smaller communities outside Vancouver, but... None quite as Kelly mentions were right next to the sea in this cradle of all these mountains. And I think it's not necessarily a secret because in Vancouver, every view has a big mountain at the end <laughs> of it. But here you're only an hour from the city and yet you're very much in the mountains. Mm-hmm. But equally, you have water access, which is huge. And that's one of the reasons Squamish is being the outdoor recreational capital of Canada is you can go windsurfing or kiteboarding or you can go mountain hmm. biking or hiking or skiing or there's not much that you can't do here. And so you really get people 365 days a year. Absolutely. You have that access. And Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of water, water is a major component of distilling, but right. water is beautiful in this area. We have exceptional water to work with. Yeah, I mean, that's we have awesome. like right behind this mountain that you can see here is actually a glacier mm-hmm. and we have the Pemberton Ice Field, which is just slightly further north from here, but all the water sources from here is glacial meltwater or snow runoff for the most part. So we're really fortunate to have a really good water supply. Kind of leads into my next question. Then if you were in Vancouver, you could say you could tie up to city services down there. Being up here, do you get your water from the local community water service or are you on pumps out here? No, or, it's, or, or it's, it's, it's the well? municipal supply, it's municipal but all supply. the municipal supplies are fed from natural aquifers. Wow. Yeah. Okay. 
petrol collection mm-hmm. points. So the closest thing that municipal water can get to being like a spring straight off this kind of glacier. Yeah, yeah pretty it. much. So it's probably minimally treated. It's just it comes into the distillery very clean and Absolutely. ready to be used. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. We're really fortunate. It's one of those talking points that I always mm-hmm. bring up when people are like, oh, they're talking about the aspects of the vodka and you're like, well, no one ever talks about the 60% of the vodka they never talk about, which is the water. Which is the water itself. And right? I always say to people, well, there's lots of different ways that you can treat water. You can reverse osmosis, you can carbon filter, you can deionize, you can distill water, mm-hmm. you know. So there's a lot of different ways that you can get your water to the point that you want to mix it. And so all those things will we do as little as we can to yeah. essentially. So we simply run it through a carbon filter to remove the chlorine. We're fortunate is that they don't actually add anything other than chlorine here. You know, okay. like there's no other things being added to the water. So it's a pretty simple process to remove it. We're fortunate we don't have very soft water here, but it's also not hard. It's right at a sort of threshold oh, nice. point. So it's, it's got things in it that are, you know, help benefit in the, the mashing process, but not so hard that you can't then use it as a, mm-hmm. you know, to mix down on so the, the character of your spirits then very much have the character of that water of the Absolutely. local aquifers in them too. So to open up a bottle of this is to get to experience what nature is here Absolutely. as well. Yeah. That's very and so well why said. touch that? Why mess with that? Exactly. Yeah. And, and with the part of the new laws in BC here, mm-hmm has all the craft designated distilleries making all their stuff from 100% BC agricultural output. And so you're very much tasting BC, you know, I think maybe surprisingly to some people is that BC isn't just all trees, you know, there is a certain section of BC that grows grain thing, and uh, not in the lower mainland funnily, Mm. it's actually way up north in BC. Oh really? Because it's almost 18 hours north from here. Yeah, BC's a big place, man. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really exciting to be part of that agricultural stimulation, Mm -hmm. you know, because of what we do, our grain supplier came down and he was just beside himself at the craft movement, because it's allowing him to support more farmers and doing what they do. And so he said, I used a bottle of your vodka to broker a $20,000 grain deal the other day. So, (laughs) you know, everything's growing and it's just, I come from a farming background. So it's really exciting to be in a place where we're supporting the agriculture. It's nice to have that symbiotic relationship. It's like distilling's old school, but this idea of having a symbiotic relationship with your local farmer and your local customers and just kind of getting away from that idea that we're going to ship alcohol all over the world and and if one of their ethos is behind us setting up this company was the idea of like being sustainable. And one of the things that struck me as particularly unsustainable is this idea that you're going to ship something like vodka around the world. And when you pick up a glass bottle that's full, you realize it weighs quite a lot. And we live in a country with more grain and more fresh water than more people, most countries do. So mm-hmm. it's this idea that you're going to import vodka here. It seemed somewhat ridiculous to me. So make it your own. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Right. So I guess that kind of goes to another question of mine. A lot of people define craft differently. You guys are probably a craft distillery. I think you would wear that label, right? We actually, BC, as of two years ago, February, changed the laws. Before two years ago, if you created a spirit in the province of BC, you were subject to an approximate 170% markup just for one of your taxes. That's aside from the PST, that's aside from your excise. And then two years ago, the minister changed the laws and said, if you create a spirit with 100% BC agriculture output as your base, Mm -hmm. you are now exempt from that tax. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was a pretty significant part of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And you want to make local products. That's why you're starting this here. Otherwise, you could just buy a global product that's made from a gigantic factory. So yes, it gives you this impetus to go and buy local grain from local British Columbia. Absolutely. 
absolutely. Growers. So, it's something you probably would have wanted to do anyways, but now it's just even more reason to absolutely. go Absolutely. And I think eventually when we look at our product line, right now we're using wheat from Peace River, but we'd eventually like to use locally farmed fruit mm-hmm. and whatever else we can work with that's locally produced. Yeah. And I would think, it was something I've heard from other distillers too, they get started, they make things from grain, things that's already being grown. But now you're developing these relationships with farmers. If you went to them in a couple of years and said, could you plant us an acre of this maybe? Because we'd really like to use it. They're going to listen to you, right? Because you're now their customer and it's to their benefit to do that. And also they probably, oh, no one's ever asked me to grow that before. Interesting. Very true. I think that's one of the cool things about the craft scene is taking advantage of those local products. The number of people that we have met that are like, oh, my tree in my yard grows 50 pounds of apples every year and I don't know what to do with these apples. And you're like, oh, you could make cider and then make brandy from that. Yeah, right. uh, Certainly within the BC, you have this scene that's growing up in the Okanagan Valley that has all this fruit. They have an abundance. And so people are really just taking advantage of the things that grow locally. It's it's one of those fascinating stories about alcohol is that people associate with certain places was just, it really comes from the products that were growing there, like the malted barley in Scotland. So they made their booze from barley. Whereas like the bourbon, which is mostly corn, it comes from the areas of the world where lots of corn grows, you know. So here, originally, there was lots of rye. Rye was one of the big original grains here. And it's one of the things that we intend to do is an all rye whiskey. But one of the interesting things, the differences between the United States and here is that you actually have very strict laws pertaining to what you're allowed to call things. And now that isn't so different from here, but the story that I always tell what's interesting is what people generically refer to as rye whiskey people can call Canadian whiskey rye whiskey mm-hmm. is actually Canada's attempt at making something that tastes like bourbon <laughs> because <laughs> oh, of prohibition really? yeah mm-hmm. and, and okay. Kelly having come from the bar industry one of the things that people had mentioned over and over is the lack of actual Canadian rye whiskey that you can buy there are only a few brands that are like 100% rye whiskey right. based things and it's actually uh, really hard from my understanding it's very hard to make 100% rye it's a difficult grain to work with mm-hmm. you know what I mean uh, but it's also one of those interesting things that that's come about because of prohibition. This product is commonly referred to as rye isn't actually rye whiskey at all, really. It's a bourbon-style right. whiskey. As anybody that's tried rye, you know, fully rye whiskey will tell you it's, it's quite a different product. Yeah. We Absolutely. intend to make a very good one. Just give us a couple of years. <laughs> Just take some time, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, everything we've talked about, it's all so great. You guys are here, fantastic water. You found this location. It's beautiful. In the future, you want to grow your product line. That's all great. It's all pointing up. I kind of want to take a step back. When you were first getting started, oh. yeah, <laughs> before you had anything in the bottle, you know, <laughs> just what was it like being the first distillery in the area? Was there an education process that you had to go through with your local zoning boards? Because it's just as you're learning about it too, you're having to go and file for all these permits. Were they easy to work with or what was that kind of like? And I'm not, you know, don't slander anyone. No, 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 no. Just, no, um, no. Wait just, I'm always name kind of names and point <laughs> fingers. I was waiting for you this know. opportunity. <laughs> exactly. Who's so, on your vendetta list? Yeah, yeah, you no, know, you know what? I think it's just, there's a huge hangover from prohibition that mm-hmm. exists currently today. And distilleries at one time took up five city blocks. So you go and you try to open a small craft distillery and they look at you like you're a dynamite factory. Yeah, I'm looking around. I don't see five city blocks in no, your space right no, here. You no, know, yeah. and you don't see a whole bunch of proof out alcohol lying around right. and you don't so yeah, there like was a, a lot of the building code pertains to a time that has gone one of the most common things that you would find when we were on our trails people were like oh you're opening a brewery and you're like 
no, we're not opening a brewery. (laughs) (laughs) Opening a distillery. And and because breweries have been like craft brewing scene has kind of, people are like, oh, they could associate with that. But when we were first setting out, the very first distillery had only just opened in Vancouver and and you'd speak to the municipal staff and they wouldn't have a clue what you were. They were like, oh, well, how is that different from a brewery? And you're Mm -hmm. like, well... It's the same process up to a point, and then it's a totally different industry. And, yeah. But then that industry is completely different. Laws pertain to that. As Kelly said, the laws changed in so much as before you had to sell to the liquor board if it was hard alcohol. And sure. now we're kind of more coming into line with breweries and wineries where we can do sales from our tasting room and that kind of thing. So we were almost just a little ahead of the curve like because like, people were still trying to work out how they were going to classify things. And, yeah. and you know, like municipal staff had never had heard of it before but now here we are a couple years later and there's something that they may have heard of or at least may have dealt with one or two before mm-hmm. you know or at least memos have been put out to people going on oh, yeah. yeah, people I, come and ask you a question about we, this you know we were originally going to be in Vancouver and we things went pretty sideways for us for a little while and we lost a bunch of time and a bunch of money and we were in a position where we had to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves off and I think to John's point, we were ahead of the curve and people didn't know how to deal with building codes and fire codes and different levels of municipality. And, you know, I think that's what happens when you're cutting through the thrush with your machete, you know, yeah. you're just out there and trying to figure it out. So I think at the end of the day, there was a lot of challenges. And I'd say to any distillers wanting to start out, just dot your I's and cross your T's as mm-hmm. much as you possibly can. And at the end of the day, things might go sideways and you've just done your absolute best. Right. And I think that all those experiences that we had led us to where we are now and that we've learned so much and you just keep asking questions and you keep trying to do the right thing and you will finally get there. Mm-hmm. It just takes perseverance. Like in a lot of industries, any, any new business, you have to keep pushing forward mm-hmm. to get it started. But especially in the spirits world, it's so heavily regulated too. And like you said, you guys were very new to this. The cities were very new to this. Nobody knew what the answer to anything was. So that's just that extra level of, you have to make sure this is something you really want to do because it's a lot of steps. Yeah. It's a lot of steps. We had we, two years we, of steps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, every, you have every pedometer on. How many steps? You <laughs> oh, did? A lot of stuff. Yeah. My pedometer broke. Yeah. Everybody. Uh, every time we thought, oh, is that that last the last inspection? And mm-hmm. then somebody else had to do some other inspection. So we had probably like about seven different inspectors. But even that, you know, it's, come it's, through it's, here. It's, it's like even when you got to those inspections, you dreamed right. of the day that you would get to that inspection. Like, is that when we got our approval and principal from the province? It was yeah. like winning an Oscar. You know, it was like, oh my God, we oh my God got here. Yeah. <laughs> We're here. Do it. Wait, can we turn it on? Can we actually start making things? Of course now? not. Yeah. No, no, no. Hold on. Slow down. <laughs> you can have your building up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but you read all those quotes, right, that are all about the darkest hours just before dawn. And all those things are very true, yeah. you know, and unless your, your metal is tested, you really don't know how strong you are mm-hmm. and you don't know how badly you want to do something. And I'd say that this experience for us has been just like anything in life. If you really want to do something, you can. But there are a lot of hoops to jump through. Burning fiery ones. Metaphorically speaking. Yeah, of not course. No, 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 no fire. No, no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough permitting questions. I could go pretty deep and I won't this time. I'm curious.
so you have things in the bottle, you have some beautiful labels, you got all the permits you need. I always like to know, what was it like the first time you actually got to turn on your still? You get that final approval. We I were pretty stoked. Like, yeah. Like our still. Did you call your parents like, Mom, oh, Dad, listen course, to this. Of course, I think we took videos. <laughs> yeah. John <laughs> was like, I haven't been more excited to watch something drip in my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an exciting, yeah, watching something dripping is, is pretty fun. Uh-huh. For sure. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's actual alcohol. It's coming yeah. out. Yeah. It was almost doubly satisfying. We had our tour. One of the things was that we repurposed a lot of equipment yeah. that, that wasn't, we didn't just go and buy our still. We bought a vessel that, you know, is like boiling pot and then uh, I fabbed our own column for it. And so when we got our still, it lay in, in the back of another business for 20 years. According really? to the guy that we bought it from. It was in a completely other industry before. It was used in the honey industry before. It was like to fire up something that had lain around that long, kind of breathe life back into a yeah. piece of machinery. It was just, it was kind of, it was really sad. It's like fixing up an old car or something, you know. It's like very <laughs> oh much, boy, very much up my on, street. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> right. it's like, Is it going to work? Yeah, you know? I mean, that was like half the interest of this business to me up until this point hasn't necessarily just been making the booze, but it's been that whole process of not just buying something and switching it on. I mean, don't get me wrong, building your own stuff will present its own challenges for sure, but it's made it that much more interesting mm. to be challenged and to work things out and to make it all run like it should. Yeah. So, it's, so like uh, the handcrafted part of your spirits isn't just about you get the grains from a local farmer, it's milled, it's boiling. The handcrafted really starts also with your stills and with your fermentation. I think I read somewhere it's like the artisan part of being a distiller isn't just when you meet these people, they're all of a similar ilk. They're all similar minded people that are just ingenuitive and and practical. And when you start to delve into the mechanics of distilling, you realize that while there's a certain amount of art, there's a large portion of science and it's not the most complicated process in the world. So it's well within the possibilities of being able to manufacture your own equipment. And depending on the spirits that you're making, if you're making something as simple as a pot still, then there's absolutely no reason why you couldn't here we are, there's a picture right next to us of all these turn-of-the-century confiscated stills from a time gone by, and, and they all look pretty handmade. Yeah, none of those look like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, I, guess you I, I mean, being a new distillery and, and small-staffed, <laughs> being able to fix your own things must also be a very big benefit to you, right? Because things will break, even if you went and bought a $3 million still mm-hmm. from a major manufacturer. Mm-hmm. I knew this crazy Italian guy that had his own coffee roasting company, and he yeah. always talked about it like he had this big fancy expensive coffee roasting machine he's like man you wouldn't believe how often I have to fix this myself you know <laughs> right, yeah. it's been is this very, why I so, bought the expensive thing but no it's gonna break everything exactly. does yeah. it's so. been very exciting watching John like I always knew that John was very capable in all these areas but to watch someone go oh okay and I have to figure this out and I have to figure this out and I have to get this guy in to do this it was like watching an artist and a craftsman put something together yeah. and so the craft in our spirits as you were alluding to isn't just what we put in the bottle but John has created that entire system himself. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's, it's very kind exciting. of like the whole new the craft industry in general. It's sort of take on a very old thing that because of prohibition became a very illegal thing to do. And, sure. and now you have this whole new generation of people rediscovering this industry. And if it wasn't a European thing, if you went to say buy distillation equipment, most of what you would find is so industrial and so huge that it's like, well, that would never fit my application. Mm-hmm. And now with the growing of the craft industry, there's more people now supplying equipment 
to it, but at the same time, it's the kind of thing that you could find a local fabricator that can fabricate your stuff. Or again, that kind of thing of going back to this old paradigm of I didn't just buy it from yeah. know, a foreign country and have it shipped here. Well, no, I used local people and local bits to make it all. And then here we are making something that we would happily take the Pepsi challenge against anybody. You know, <laughs> uh, it's about the passion with which people do things. I mm-hmm. think that want and desire to make something that's awesome and that doesn't exist in the larger alcohol industry they're right. just these are huge machines that just they're out there making money and that's what they do there isn't this push to really make something exceptional and the people that are making something exceptional are now the smaller craft guys mm-hmm. that are putting that passion back into the the, cra- the words craft and handmade get used a little flippantly in the industry hand I think. pushes and, the automated button that yeah, makes the it, whole machine it, run you know so, so like yeah. loose terms of course but right. I think when you look around at what we're doing and what some other people in British Columbia are doing it hits the nail on the head of craft Mm -hmm. for sure. Well, so how do you communicate that passion then? Because it's great that you're here. You've helped make your own stills. You've repurposed a lot of equipment. It's your own recipes that go into these bottles. But if no one else finds out about it, then congratulations, it all ends in this building, right? (laughs) What is your methodology for getting the word out about your products? And how do people find out about you? Do you use... Social media. Well, that's that's my question. Do you use social media to get it out? Is it internet driven? Well, what's interesting is like the actual craft of distilling is so old and has so unchanged for so long. Like it says, that part is well understood. But the other side to the craft industry is the people that are really doing well are the people that are getting themselves out there knowing mm-hmm. and how do you set yourselves apart from the other craft distillers of all the people we've met we've never ever felt that there's a huge amount of competition between mm-hmm. all the craft distilleries everybody there yeah. seems to be enough business for everybody and this was one of the first years that one of the big breweries here in Canada announced that there's a reduction in sales and as a direct result of craft brewing becoming yeah. much bigger and, and I think distilling is equally one of these things that it's getting ever better known it's that idea that we talked about earlier that takes people a couple of times to adopt the idea of like, oh, well, there's a local thing that I should actually try. And this is about getting out there and reaffirming that. And how do people communicate nowadays? It's for the most part, social media is by far the, the yeah. biggest outreach that you can do. I think we do a lot of social media outreach. There's two other components, I think, to it too. One is relationships. One of the things that I bring to the table is just having worked in the restaurant business for years and years and years, you're serving tables, you're slinging drinks at a bar and you're like, what am I doing? And then you realize all these years later that all these people you met on your journey have become a major component of supporting you in this business that we're in now, like contacts in the media industry. And we have wonderful relationships with people like Vikram Vidge from My Shanty and Vidges who've been unbelievably supportive. And another restaurant called Kotoinoteca that's all focused on local spirits and local products. So all these relationships that have been developed over years, they we feed each other, we support mm-hmm. each other. And it then, must be helpful to you also when you go in and you want to pitch your product to a restaurant, you speak their language, right? You know what they absolutely. want to hear. I think anyone that is looking at the distilling industry needs to look at their relationships with the people that are going to be using their products. That's really important. You want to make products that people are going to use. And another part of it too is being in a community like Squamish. I sit on the brand leadership team here and I'm speaking to Chamber of Commerce and it's really about driving your local community too because your locals support you and then your locals will go out and preach the beauty of their community to other people. So I think that's another part of it. 
Because as they travel, as someone from this community who knows about you and drinks your alcohol here, they go down to Vancouver, they go to another city and they say, oh, do you have Sin Gin? Which we'll get into your products in a moment. But yeah, and there's nothing more powerful to a bartender to hear, do you have this? And for them to tell their customer, no, but now I need to get it. There's this old saying that it's not so much what you do is why you do it. And it's that story. People come to the distillery and they get that personable experience Mm -hmm. and this interesting story of how it comes about and our own personal experiences. And I think it is that relationship that you have with everybody that walks through the door then becomes a champion, even within the craft scene where there's lots of craft distilleries coming. And what will even set you apart from those people is how do you approach that interaction that you have with the people that you work with. And if you've worked in restaurants or bars, it's very much, you don't, just want to work with the general public. You want to have a relationship with everybody that comes through your door. People often come in the weekend and they're like, man, how do you ever get time to do anything? And it's like, (laughs) well, we we don't open to the public. Every day of the week. And people want to chat. They want to know what you're about because it's really exciting. Well, I think it kind of goes back to to your earlier mission statement about how you want to steal business from the big boys. You can't just be a story on the back of a label that says we're small label handcrafted because the big boys have labels that say that exactly. too. We have thing, no yeah. information so, on our labels and that was yeah. that was partly a choice because the stuff in the bottle speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. But also you guys sell an authentic experience so people come in here and they actually get to meet John who's the guy who's making it. And, yeah. and so in that regard I noticed you have a tasting room here. Does that kind of all play into then making that connection with your customers? Is that why you have this tasting room? Because they can come in and actually meet you. Absolutely. Absolutely. The tasting room aspect is an opportunity. We toured around a lot of distilleries and one of the things that we really thought was that while you can do tastings, there's some things like gin, very few people, even the vodka is quite an interesting experience when you see people drinking straight vodka. And yeah. <laughs> then they're, they're searching for the stuff to say about it and, and you realize... And you're sitting watching this whole reaction and you're like, well, it's kind of funny because you're like, when was the last time you drank straight vodka? <laughs> 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 right, we, I, people but, have words for whiskey, you know, it's smooth, yeah. it's sweet, it's smoky. But, people but always, vodka is... Uh, yeah. well, people are always pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Oh, it they're doesn't always, burn. They're like, <laughs> yeah. oh my God, that's actually palatable. And yeah. you're like, yeah, yeah it sure is. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, and I think part of our tasting room ethos is this lounge aspect that will allow us to present drinks so like with gin, people will give you this little thimble of gin and you're like, well, no one really drinks gin like that. What you really want is to sample it in a drink yeah. and to really appreciate that particular product. One of our ethos here is definitely how we can best present our spirits. One of the things people often ask is, how would I use that? You know, yeah. like mm-hmm. Not necessarily with vodka and gin, but with our other products, people would be like, oh, well, what else would I do with that? And here we're hoping to have the opportunity to showcase the variety of things that you can do with some interesting spirits. And I think you know, with the craft industry, there's so many of those coming along. You yeah. know, so it's, it's, it's cool. You know? So let's talk about now the spirits you actually do make. What is your portfolio? What all do you make here? Currently, everything is all made from wheat when everything that we make is based of our vodka that we make from the wheat at the moment. So we currently have our vodka. We make gin. We have a limoncello. And we also have a product called Afro, which is an <laughs> aphrodisiac elixir. So Whoa, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Highly right, effective. Uh, right. <laughs> Those are the products that we have at the moment, but obviously mm-hmm. we are planning uh, to get into some whiskeys shortly this year. Looking at interesting things too, John has a story about how there's 5 million tons of cherries that grow in the Okanagan every year, but they only harvest 3 million because they all fall to the ground. Oh, really? We found in an old archaic book 
how to make a cherry amaretto and you use mostly the pits. So just looking at different huh. ways we can utilize product that's available in the province. We mm-hmm. want to bring interesting, innovative things to the market. Right. Your vodka is distinct in that it's actually drinkable straight and everything. Yeah. But I mean, everyone's making a vodka. Everybody people make makes vodkas, vodka. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people make whiskey. And of course, yours will be your own unique take mm-hmm. on it. But with the equipment you have in your distillery, you can distill anything. Yep. So why not try to see what aren't other people doing? And exactly. being there, craft, being small, a- you have that maneuverability, that flexibility to be able to pull out an old recipe and Absolutely. then work with There are so many kinds of alcohol, especially now with the resurgence of the classic cocktail scene. There are now this sort of like re-examination of all these old ways of doing things. And and there's so many things that people will often tell you. A lot of the pre-prohibition cocktails were made with rye whiskey, not with bourbon or scotch sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. there's a look towards proper rye whiskeys, which we kind of touched on before. But then there was, what was the creme de violette? Creme creme de violette and creme de celery. It's a product which is in a lot of classic cocktail recipes, which you can't even buy. Nobody's making that. Yeah, exactly. So there are many, like the limoncello that we make, we call it limoncello, but classically it's like limoncello. Right, right. Sort of a cheeky joke. It's like a Canadian limoncello is limoncello. (laughs) Yeah, lemon cello. And if you look at the bottle, it's a lemon and a cello. (laughs) (laughs) Italy especially would be the perfect example of there's been so many liqueurs and things like digestifs and the herbal liqueurs. There's this world of possibilities and especially Mm -hmm. as Kelly had mentioned, when it comes to fruit, we live quite not too far away from a big fruit producing part of BC and certainly within that there's a whole world of possibilities and this is really interesting to see think that all the things that will come from that. So how do you develop your recipes? How did Afro come about? How did you make sure you were putting something into a bottle that someone would want to buy and you're not just making 600 cases of an aphrodisiac just for the two of you. you know? <laughs> well, I don't think we've made 600 cases so far. <laughs> of anything. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, Afro, I mean, hopefully you will. I mean, but so what was your taste-making process? Afro's a really good question, actually. It was yeah. when John and I were at the Craft Distilling Institute in Washington State. We were in the course and we're like, let's make something interesting. And I was like, let's make something aphrodisiac. <laughs> let's have her have an Afro on the front of the bottle, but it's A-P-H-R-O. So it was this mm. whole kind of twist on it. Yeah. And I, at the time, was working, running a bar in Vancouver called La Mescaleria and I was working with mezcal and tequila. So I'd naturally work with a lot of chilies. Okay. So John and I borrowed chilies from the restaurant. We borrowed about 10 different kinds of chilies. And we bought Borrowed, a bunch of, you gave them all back. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> and then we had a bunch of vodka. And so we basically did an infusion of each of the different kinds of chilies in the vodka. And then we noticed that there doesn't seem to be a chili chocolate product. There's chili chocolate bars and there's chili chocolate mousse, but we didn't really see any chili chocolate liquor on yeah. the shelves. So we basically went through a whole blending process where we experimented with the chilies and the vodka and cacao soaked in vodka. And we basically worked it and worked it and worked it until we got the right ratios and until we developed what is now our product, Afro. I see. Wow. Yeah, so a lot of blending kind of thing. It was, yeah. Uh, yeah. Know, like we trials, broke it down into its constituent parts. And that's how we make it. We soak each part individually. Oh, really? And then we blend okay. it at the end. And it always brings up this interesting story. I always used to scoff at this idea that there was somebody in Jack Daniels that always made Jack Daniels taste like this master... Every bottle dude, must taste he's the like, same. So he's it's like, one oh. guy's job to blend so, all that and together. And I was like, well, how is that even possible? Surely this guy might have a cold on one day and uh, how does he know it tastes the same? But certainly with the Afro, it's a four-component thing. And once you've got those four components, certainly within a certain zone, then you've got your product. You know, it might be subtly variable, but it's yep. 
within that zone you wouldn't necessarily notice. It has all the attributes you'd expect. It's got this much fieriness, it's got this much sweetness, it's got this much cacao-ness kind of thing. The chilies themselves aren't consistent from Precisely. one to which is why you have to have that individual. Exactly. Precisely, because their season's going to be different. And right, was it a hot season? Was it a cold season? Exactly, and, and the chili will the... be different. And part of our whole thing too is that we are selling to a lot of craft bartenders and we try to maintain a very specific kind of product. So we're trying to limit the variables so that when you get our gin, you're going to get a consistent product mm -hmm. so that your last word or your aviation is going to taste consistent and yeah. you don't constantly have to adjust based on our product being different. Yeah, for sure. I think consistency is definitely one of these things that is one of the more challenging things that you're to build into your program kind of thing. Even like with gin, the different quality of ingredients that you get just naturally is they can vary quite significantly. And so how do you then get around the problem of like, you know, oh, my juniper is much more juniper than today. Right. <laughs> right. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about your gin because I think gin is having its moment right now, having Absolutely. a moment right now. Yeah, a lot Definitely. of people are starting to make their own gins. Mm -hmm. And gin is defined by juniper berry, right? Mm -hmm. So the question is, what can you do with the other 49% of flavors? What do you guys do with your blend? How do you make your gin not just taste like one of the major London dry styles or something? So that's the $64 million question right there, <laughs> <Yeah>. man. <laughs> well, I'm, not, look, I'm not asking for state secrets, but you know, yeah. just really what defines yours? How would you describe Sin Gin? I think one of these is we kind of hark back to this idea that there's a lot of different ways of doing exactly the same thing. So yeah. with, certainly within gin, there's many different ways of making gin. You can steep infuse it, you can mm -hmm. vapor infuse it. So when I was originally trying to create a gin recipe. I was trying to model it after a gin that I really liked. Okay. Uh, like on one of the bigger brands, their brand does it in a particular type of still where it's, it's called a Carter head still, which is a vapor infusion rather than a steeped infusion. Yeah. And I think Hendrix reset the bar. When they brought out Hendrix, it kind of created a whole new segment in the gin industry. I think they now refer to it as the new American style, where it's, it's much less juniper forward and mm -hmm. much more other flavor forward. But to create that other flavor, you really need to dial the juniper back. Juniper is just this incredibly pervasive element. And so for you to get any other elements coming through, you really need to control that aspect of it because it can just be so overpowering. The key to really amazing gins is that their balance of flavors is not that, you know, everybody's got that story of, oh, my mom drank Gordon's dry gin and it's just like, wow. <laughs> It's really juniper gin, you know. Couple of things yeah. about our gin too is that we proof it to forty three percent because that mm. was a big request from a lot of the bartenders that I was working with was to present a gin that has a slightly stronger alcohol. Yeah. Because when you're making some of these classic gin drinks like Negronis and like I mentioned the last word, or you want the gin to be powerful in it, you mm -hmm. want it to stand up against flavors like maraschino and chartreuse. So you need it to be strong. And I would call ours a new American style because what John was saying about dialing the juniper back. Yeah. And then we also wanted to hearken to the local botanicals. So we actually use a local white pine and local spruce. Oh, do you really? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Just mm -hmm. a few sprigs. It does bring more of that localness to it, though. Yeah, it's local yeah. meets traditional. It's a flavor you're only going to get because it's from Absolutely. here. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one of the furs actually smells amazingly. It's interesting because they call them juniper berries, but juniper berries are actually a fur cone. Okay, and, yes. Uh, they're like, and so they're the yeah. smallest fir cone in the family of fir cones or something like that. Pine so, cones. yeah, it's a pine cone or whatever. <laughs> yeah, so fir cone, pine cone. And it's interesting, we were out hiking around in the bush, and I'm like, man, this 
stuff smells just like juniper. What we is should, this? Yeah. We should include some of this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, everybody's like, oh, nowadays it's like, what's your marketing shtick on your gin? And it's like, do you have local botanicals? This part of a marketing thing, but it's also taking advantage of what is literally on our doorstep. And people that like gin love gin. Ever since we released our gin last Thursday, we haven't been able to keep it on the shelves. People have been breaking down our doors for the gin and people love it. That so, explains and, the splinters. Yeah, I absolutely. The <laughs> Sorry <Yeah>. about that. <laughs> but, and the other aspect in there is we also have locally grown lemon verbena. Oh, really? Yeah, which is oh, a really wow. nice aspect of it as well. Yeah. yeah, we're just trying to, again, live that local idea, being able to source everything as locally as you can. Obviously, there are some things that, you know. Just don't grow like, here. Yeah. Don't. I don't think grains of paradise grow. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. berries, <laughs> yeah, you know. But that's what's interesting. To say that you don't like gin is to say that you don't like sauce. Okay. You, know, like gin. <laughs> you just don't you just haven't found the one that you like yet. Well, that's, yeah. it's, it's like, yeah. you know, it's like whiskey is a term that covers an awfully broad sure. spectrum of drinks. Now, gin is now becoming a far more broader spectrum of spirit than it used to be. Before you would have a very London dry style, which is a very particular style of gin. You'd have very, Jennifer. So with this new resurgence and in interest in the gin, I think this is where you're getting all these other types of gin that are Absolutely. either have their cucumber like Hendrix or they so other flavors no matter what, if you put juniper in it, it was always going to yeah. taste like juniper. It's it? always going to be there. Gin yeah. is defined as like a juniper predominant right. spirit. So as long as there's a little bit in there, you're pretty much always going to get gin. So it's how, <laughs> it's how yeah. you kind of balance the rest sure. of the flavors. So a lot of what we've talked about has been, how are people going to use your spirits? And you use your bar background and your restauranteering background. And I wonder... Does that kind of carry over into your bottle design? Because the thing about bottles is they are utilitarian as much as they also stand out on the shelf. So did you think about when people grab these bottles, I want to make sure it's something that bartenders can use to make it easier to pour. Did you want it to be something that could really stand out on a shelf? I mean, you know, it's not shaped like a skull or it's not no. shaped like something crazy. It's actually Zach, something that can be used. Bottle questions are, and packaging questions in general are such good questions because you put an unbelievable amount of thought and time into the packaging package itself on the whole. Our bottle specifically was chosen because it wasn't made in China. Oh, okay. Our bottles were made, were made in Missouri. Oh. Yeah. Again, harking back to this idea of being a sustainable company and trying to source things as locally as we can, glass bottles fell into that because this idea that you're going to ship things around the world pretty unnecessarily is part of the problem. I yeah, think. your carbon and footprint is massive and you're just shipping empty bottles. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. They have nothing and, in and, it. Yeah. And you mentioned the skull. I mean, one of the things that really motivated us or motivated me to go from being just interested was the skull vodka. Now, Danica you know, is a genius. Yeah, the I mean, marketing a, thing is like... They, brilliant they, marketing. Yeah. They, no they criticism for that. But you talk to bartenders and it's impossible it's to in, use. And that's the, why yeah. it doesn't get used. And ours were just having been a bartender mm -hmm. for as long as I was, being able to grasp a bottle was a big component. And yeah. so I would make decisions behind the bar based on how I was able to pour. Mm -hmm. But not only that, I made a lot of decisions around whether I could get a pour spout effectively okay. into. So I love the 1800 silver tequila, mm -hmm. but it was very difficult for me to use behind the bar because it was this awkward shape. And no matter what pour spout I tried, I couldn't get a proper pour spout oh, into no. it. So I would often engage with reps going, 
if you want me to use your product, you got to look at making alterations on your packaging. Okay. So that was a big, and also, you know, our decisions around corks was a big thing too. Yeah, and, talk about that. I like to nerd out a little bit on closures. What, sure, what went into closures, your decision? And- well, closures was really, we wanted them to be organic and feel, so that's why you have the wood. How many corks did we look at? To- <laughs> yeah, we went through like, you know, just because we wound up picking the bottles and after we picked the bottles, we'd already got them before we realized it's a lot wider necked than say a standard wine bottle. And wine bottles, as Kelly mentioned, a lot of pourers and a lot of standard size corks only fit in that size of neck opening. Sure. So we went through quite a few different permutations. And what's interesting is one of the things that we'd always agreed on was that very classic sound of a cork. Shunk going oh yeah, yeah. oh really yeah. 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 we were like that's one of those cool things and but one of the things that we found and i'm still not entirely sure as to why this is the case but say like whiskey bottles all come with actual real cork mm-hmm. and that's what causes that whoop noise okay. but real cork we found disintegrates and it'll wind up leaving a whole bunch of particles in your bottle hmm. and so is that it something is, you want in a clear it's not sexy yeah, no. yeah exactly eventually this led us to having synthetic and it also from the perspective of finding something that would actually fit you know we actually went to a lot of different companies before we found yeah. the, the stoppers that would best suit us kind of thing so mm-hmm. that's a fascinating point i've never heard anyone say that one of your thoughts was the auditory part of opening up a bottle. You're right. Now that you mentioned it, it's one of those things you just know what a bottle opening sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the original companies that we dealt with was they have these, and they look really cool. They're these glass stoppers, but they have like a little plastic thing. And, yes. But when you pull them out, the glass always oh. clinks off the glass. <laughs> and so you like pull, you pull the clock around and it goes oh, clink. It? You know, it looks cool, but you're like, uh, it doesn't feel cool, doesn't sound mm-hmm. cool. So it was one of those drinking is very much an experience. If you're out there advocating, it's not about drinking just to get intoxicated. Mm-hmm. It's about the whole... Ex- I never put the cork back on the bottle. What do yeah, you yeah, yeah exactly. totally. Right. totally. <laughs> but it's all... Alcohol comes from a spiritual origin. If you look at the origin of wine, if you look at the origin of spirits, if you look at the origin of beer, how many monks make spirits, you know, right. and beer, etc. But alcohol consumption, there's a real ritual to it. And I think that when you're looking at your packaging as a distiller, you realize that if you're going to be a company that's going to be around for a really long time, you're going to be part of people's ritual. Mm-hmm. And so looking at a way to make it something that people want to approach as opposed to not. Yes. Yeah. A three-dimensional experience. Yeah, right? no, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. well, and then the visual part of it all, your labels, those are some very creative labels you have. And I can see them really standing off on a shelf. Behind a bar, they're very colorful. Something someone's going to notice is going to catch the eye. Did you work with a label designer to come up with that? Um, local much. artist? Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we went through a lot. Of, like, our label design was another thing that we went through. It's far more challenging process than we maybe thought that it was going to be. I tell the story quite often is that we're maybe one of the last generations that have grown up with this idea that the formality behind scripted writing. When I was in school, you had to learn how to join up your writing. You got yeah. marked on that subject. And now kids don't even write stuff in school. They type on computers. And so if you look at all the old labels, like all the old liquor labels, they've come from a generation where script was the most important thing. So everything's based around names and it's like all big solid, like, you know, Jim Bean, Mm -hmm. Jack Daniels. It's not like with the new, the nouveau kind of wine scene. This has changed, you know, that if anything is the most comparable thing to where Mm -hmm. the, the new craft scene is coming from and it's a bit like the change of the guard we're now coming from a far more scripted orientated 
buying segment of the market to people that are far more visually orientated. Mm -hmm. Now you're getting far more kind of graphically designed labels, certainly within wine industry. And when I see our stuff on shelves, it really does stand out. Now you can see with some bars that they kind of almost want to maybe keep that kind of classic. Right. Mm -hmm. They don't want that bright pink singeance sitting <laughs> on the shelf, friend, you know. But that's who are you trying to appeal to, you know. Yeah, it goes back to you, knowing your audience. Are you right? going to, well, in 20 years from now, that bright pink thing will be classic, right? I was kind of inspired by the idea that so many people could sell, like, you know, if you could sell so many of these demonic skulls right. uh, around the world and fill it with not particularly awesome stuff, imagine what you could do with a little more, you know, like, as you say, and as you say, everybody is kind of searching for that unique bottle design. But if you right. look at the St. Germain's and the Jack Daniels, when we were kids, my friends used to collect Jack Daniel bottles because mm -hmm. they were unique. Yeah, And there's definitely that aspect of you want your packaging to be unique. But when you start to look into the economics of having bottles made for you, you quickly realize as a small company, that's not something that's particularly practical. Right, because you know, you, like, you're, you're paying for your rent. You're paying to get your still put together. You know, you're paying you, 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 for a mold <laughs> for a bottle at yeah. 30 grand or whatever it is. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's like and a run of glass yeah, to do that exactly. too. It's, it's all just, about minimum numbers. Everything, right. everything is about minimum numbers. When you buy bottles or labels or everything gets cheaper as you start to get into the, you know, but when you're a small company like us starting out, mm -hmm. you know, what trying to predict what your first year of sales is going to be, you're never going to be like, oh, we're going to sell 75,000 of anything. Mm -hmm. So certainly when it comes to custom bottles and things like everybody would like to have their own sure. custom bottle, but I think the reality is it's just not practical really. Yeah, I think one thing that people have said too is, yes, you want a very unique bottle, and so you have one made for you. You got to buy all of them up front. Yeah. So then where are you going to store it? And all craft distilleries, you don't have a lot of space here, right? You can't just have a hallway filled up with unused glass bottles that it may take you a couple of years to work your way through. Absolutely. And then what if you don't like it? <laughs> well, and then the, you got to yeah. think about different sizes too, right? Mm -hmm. Because people often come through and they're like, do you have, I'd like one of these and one of these, but do you have this in a smaller size? Huh, okay. So that's a whole other consideration is to give people different volumes. And yeah. especially if people are traveling, crossing the border, they can only bring, I think it's one or two yeah, bottles. It's so. one of the things that's that we, we toured around a lot distilleries and would have liked to have bought stuff but you're not going to drink an entire bottle of vodka on a two week maybe, well sure, maybe sure. Some, <laughs> I mean but it would be far easier to buy a smaller 375 sizes mm -hmm. or even a 200 size bottle that then it's just a sampler that you could then take with you but as Kelly says buying bottles is it's all you know even the bottles that we have it's all about minimum numbers you know like yeah. you gotta buy a skid and a skid I think it was like a thousand bottles or something like that. So everybody would like to have those unique bottles. But if you can't get a unique bottle, I guess the next stage is then to have unique labels. Unique look. Yeah. And a unique look, yeah. And actually a unique product. More than anything, you want people to enjoy the thing that's inside the bottle. Absolutely. Exactly, too. Right? So that's an investment there. Invest in what's inside of it. And I mean, like Kelly would always say that she comes from a Somali background. So she's mm -hmm. buying wine on the merits of the wine. Whereas I'm a bit of an ignorant when it comes to that. Okay. I buy my wine based on its labels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There so you, go. I, I often, you don't uh, make bad choices though, yeah. which is yeah. Awesome. But there, so it's just like mm -hmm. I always thought of it that way. I'm like, oh, you know, I'm more attracted to fun or yeah. more different labels. So in that spirit, your label designer, the people you worked with, did you kind of consider them as an incorporated part of your team? Oh, you know? huge. yeah. There, yeah there's I someone mean, you could talk to and say. Here's our vision for the product. And, then and they, do you have any idea how hard that was to find? I yeah. can only imagine. That relationship, that that relationship was so challenging because we went through a lot of it. We always felt like we had a really clear vision, right? We were always like, this is who we are and this is what we want our labels to like. And they were like, well, I don't understand your story. 
or our story is exactly who we are. You know, yeah. it was almost like they were trying to fabricate something that right. wasn't there, right? Yeah, what if we changed did, a couple of facts about yeah, exactly, you? Yeah. And we're like, there was different no. levels of graphic. You could go and you could go to a company and spend $40,000 and mm. they would do your whole package, but that's $40,000. And yeah. you're like, who's got that to spend on labels? Not even the labels themselves, but just the design on the yeah. labels. And so we had a very strong idea of what a lot of our labels were going to look like. So we just needed somebody to manifest that into mm. actual artwork. And so actually it took us a long time to find after sort of ship like farming out a few different places, it took a while before we had anybody really come back with something that was like what we were envisaging. And at one point, we had different pieces of artwork that we were thinking of using. And oh, okay. And a piece of advice we were given is that really you want all of it done by the same person. So even though they're different products, it has a consistency. And I think that one of the compliments that we've been paid more is that people are like, oh, I like how all your things are consistent. You know, I mean, when I first thought of our labels, I never ever thought I would have a pink label or a <laughs> blue label or, you know, like uh, I was just thinking somebody was going to come along and envisage what this idea, like be the artist yeah. kind of thing. And so I think finding that relationship where somebody can realize your vision, you know, if you're not the artist, if you don't have a vision, it's helpful to find Find somebody that you can like relate to and work with. Yeah, can, it must like, be pretty cool too that. to tell someone this is our vision, and then actually have them sit down and draw and be like, "Yes, that's exactly." It was really what I was, cool. It yeah. was really cool. We that's actually cool. Had, did the whole thing over Skype and oh, over yeah. the internet, and it was amazing to be able to <laughs> use today's technology and have that kind of a deep personal exchange. Mm -hmm. And it was an interesting choice too because you're either using your company name and then the product being second to that, or you're using the product as the name and then your company name being second to that. So ours, of course, the products themselves are the focus and then our company being secondary. Yeah. And that's an interesting decision along the way as well. Mm -hmm. Is it Gillespie's Gastown Shine or is it Gastown Shine by Gillespie's? Mm -hmm. And with you, you just have a little G on top to let everyone know this is where it comes from. Yeah, and, the, and there's, the you know, the branding is, there's yeah. some subtlety to it, but it definitely has our information on the back. Mm -hmm. And then the G is really the logo that was designed after the whole idea of the company. And the G is really what, it's a road. And the company was named after a friend of John's. Yeah, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, just reviewing your names, Gillespie, not one of <laughs> Yeah, no, of no. Where did Gillespie's come from? A good friend of mine, and he died a few years ago in a motorcycle accident. He was a big fan, and he was one of yeah. the guys that first put the idea in my head that this was something that you could do legitimately. And more as an ode to him, I decided to call it after him. There was a couple of reasons. My last name is very, very rarely pronounced correctly, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so I was just like, to save myself that much trouble, I thought it would be easier to call it his name. And now I know he's laughing at me going, man, you, I could have told you that if I was still alive, that not, that'd be the worst eye of the year. Because <laughs> people call it um, Jill Spies, Jill Spies, Giuseppe's. Are you just try, are you even trying? Or are you <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny. It's, yeah. uh, but it's, it's funny because it's not, Gin, right? It's gin. Yeah. And then, yeah. so yeah. it's one yeah. of those. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's funny because, uh, you know, like I know now that he's having a last laugh at that for sure. The G, in fact, it's two lines, and the designer worked with us. And after the story, we told him about our friend Cameron Gillespie, and that the two lines are like, um, the two roads and a highway. Okay. And that it's the travel's the only thing that you can buy that will last forever, I think is the concept. So yeah, it's wow. they, they, it was cool. Like, they That's had really cool. Splurge at the beginning. They're like, yeah, this is our representation of your car. And I We're was like, like wow, wow, you guys. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> cool, man. <laughs> <That's really> cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were awesome. Yeah, we were stoked to find those mm -hmm. guys to work with for sure. Yeah. 
So another part of your team I'd kind of like to talk about is how do you actually get your products to market? Do you work with a distributor or do you self-distribute? Uh, one, you... one of the laws that got changed previously, you had to sell all hard liquor to the liquor board. Okay. And that's where the 170% markup came yes. in kind of thing. And so one of the laws that changed was the ability to do direct sales and sell from our own tasting room. So we just agent ourselves. And okay. like Kelly said, her previous relationship in the restaurant and bar industry has been invaluable to us in terms of getting that sort of foot in the door for mm -hmm. a lot of things. One of the things we were acutely aware of was how quickly the scene has escalated in America and how here it was inevitably going to do the same thing. Sure. And, and we started planning this before they changed the laws. So when they changed the laws, we knew, oh, it's, it's going to explode kind of thing. And uh, so getting established before mm -hmm. there's 20 other distilleries yeah. was one of our big priorities. And if you look at the scene that has developed in the United States, some of the what are now considered pretty big distilleries at one point were the original craft distilleries. Mm -hmm. And so it's this interesting change in the in the balance of power, you know. Here we are just shy of 100 years of the end of Prohibition and, and how Prohibition has affected everything and how here we are climbing our way out of the sort of remnants of Prohibition and all these interesting things, that, like all these interesting businesses. And if you take away from the fact that everybody makes interesting products, just touring around distilleries and meeting the people like yourself, I'm sure, is just this. That in itself is a fascinating. Absolutely, you know, it's this kind of created like this agrotourism thing that they yeah is this ever growing kind of thing. So, but I do think for a lot of people who are just getting into distilling and want to get into it, I do think for some people they don't always think about how much time they spend outside of the distillery, meeting people, knocking on doors. But that's a big part of it, and having this ability to distribute on your own, self-agent, as you put it. It must be a great benefit. I mean, yes, it's more of your time, but it's also you control your message and you control where you want to go. And Absolutely. We're Absolutely. lucky yeah. enough to have John's brother Gavin as part of our team as oh, well. Oh, really? It's a, okay. real, it's a real family business. So I'm often doing sales and then we have John's brother Gavin who's doing sales. And yeah, so definitely don't open a distillery by yourself. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I realize this now. I've worked for several small business owners and now I realize that a small business is not one person. It's the team that you create. And if you yeah. think that you're going to manage to do everything by yourself, then you're very wrong because... Hence having John's parents here recently from Scotland has been amazing. They've been labeling bottles oh, and just, they get here and they're like, what are, affair. what are yeah, we doing yeah. today? And we're like, oh gosh. So be careful, family members. If they invite you out here, yeah, <laughs> you're exactly. going to be put to you're work. You're going to be yeah. put to work. <laughs> and family is just a huge, huge part of this. Yeah. You know, it's just invaluable. It's, certainly within the United States, depending on what state you're in, will dictate. We have a friend that's opened in Oregon, opened yeah. a distiller in Oregon that we made on this distilling course and definitely one of the things that he finds challenging is the centralized distribution of alcohol through the liquor sure. board and how then do you set yourself apart from all these other products and we're fortunate in that we as you say get to sell ourselves whereas he has a much harder job of connecting with bartenders and things because then they just get it from him. They have yeah. to order it through mm -hmm. like a board and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So, so when you ask your distributor, ask them to get this for you, whomever. Yeah. 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 One of the things that maybe wasn't our focus to begin with, after touring around a few distilleries, we realized that really when you do this, the people who are really going to be your bread and butter are going to be the people that are local to you, that are going to support you because you are local and, and are going to champion you. So not just the public, but local business is you start wherever your distillery might be located, that's going to be the center point of where you work out from. And, Absolutely. And I think you wouldn't open a distillery in the middle of the countryside 
unless say it was like the Okanagan where you have millions of people in motorhomes mm-hmm. going there specifically mm-hmm. because it's like, you know, wine and country. People will go and seek you out with the tasting room. That's going to be such an integral part of your revenue stream. I think, you know, now that we are open and only just open, we're realizing that the more revenue streams that you can have as a small business is going to be the difference between you making it and not making it. Keep your eyes open for our line of non-alcoholic and alcoholic cocktail mixers. Oh, really? Is that something you're planning on right now? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It's called Booze Witch, and it's a whole (laughs) bunch of different products that can take vodka and gin, all the things that we sell, and then turn them into magical cocktails and elixirs that you can make at home. That's very cool. So I think, yeah, you need to get that local core support, Mm -hmm. which will, to some extent, guarantee you a certain amount of business there. Yeah. It's so, you know, established the liquor industry. Right. You know, the companies that do it are so big and they have reps that, that can offer all kinds of things that as a small company, there's no way that you could compete with the things that they could offer. You but know? you can't send the top salesman to Mexico, for example, or well, anything like exactly. that. Well, yeah. exactly. And, you know, so it, you it, have it's to. not totally above board in the liquor business, but it does happen that these big distributors and big brokers and stuff can often offer a lot of benefits to restaurants and bars that yeah. as a small company, you simply can't. Mm-hmm. So, but it's just the range of products that they can offer them rum and gin and all these different right. things now we being a craft is like set up under the craft rules here we're not we can't make rum because they don't grow sugar cane yeah, here exactly, yeah. exactly. But as much as we might like to but there are challenges that you will face like going into these big bars it is about consistency to them it's all about when I make a gin drink I want it to be exactly the same every single time Yeah. and with the craft thing it's like are they even prepared to take the chance to turn away from their product and then there's the Companies that are making these products, not only are they consistent and good, but they're also cheap. You wonder sometimes how the big, big companies make a lot. How oh, much yeah, where's that they, margin there? Yeah. They make. <laughs> there are, you know, challenges to establishing yourself that way, but I think starting with a local focus, then. Sure. Always- well, let's talk a little bit about challenges to getting started. If you could go back in time, and tell yourself, just as you were getting started, something you've learned now, what do you wish you can go back and say, oh man, here's this really big point you're not going to learn for two years and let me just tell it to you now. What do you wish you had known then that you know now? Oh, I would definitely advocate the KISS principle. Keep yeah. it as simple as possible. Absolutely. Uh, what you don't want to do, is, especially when you're dealing with bureaucracy, is provide anything for them that they find confusing to understand. Mm-hmm. So when it comes down to you want to have the simplest plan that you can, now should you, once you get into business, expanding is an entirely different game than it is. Like, you know, when you are getting into business, you don't really want to confuse people with, I'm going to have 10 stills in here. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Write the plan and have one still on it. And then should you need to upscale, then that's something that's easier to do than somebody going, oh man, are you really going to put that much in here? And that's probably so one of those So it's one thing things. to have vision. <laughs> you don't have to get it all done on day uh, one. Absolutely. Yeah. Keep yourself focused on getting open and getting started. And then you can do things like mixers and things that really expand the brand. Absolutely. Ex- you may have these grand ideas, but just keeping it as simple as possible for the very beginning. It's going to take twice as long and cost twice as much. And we always heard that and we were like, but that doesn't make any sense. You know, we're so organized, but it doesn't... It's not you that's going to cost you twice as much as waiting on everybody else. And I think that's probably one of the other things I would say to people is start with the smallest space that you can. 
because by far the biggest expense that we have gone through other than equipment is rent. Okay. That's not you something know. you can ever cut back on, right? It's well, always, rent I mean, is always every, be every month rolls around and yep. you've got your couple of thousand dollars in rent and then there's all your other expenses. So when you're doing your bottom line and you're doing your break even, it's easy to sit there and go, okay, well, we need to make $5,000 a month. That equates to this many bottles. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh, that many bottles is going to be easy to sell. Ramp up takes a lot longer yeah. than you think it's going to. Within your first year, say. So yeah. like we are discovering that even though this is a small town and people are very locally orientated, that some people are only just hearing us about this now and we've been here almost six months and a lot of the businesses we've looked at other distilleries it's been after their first year that they've really started to become established yeah and certainly within that first year every month if you rented someplace it's five thousand bucks a month and you think this is just so great and such a great location but within your first year that's going to be sixty thousand dollars in rent that's a lot of money to budget for just having that great location that eventually might become amazing or it might be the best size for you in three years but it's hard to think oh i'm going to invest all this time and energy into a space that might not be the perfect ideal space but certainly within the zoning and such you're going to get stuck in an industrial zone it's just going to happen anyway you know so (laughs) i want to be on top of that mountain up yeah. there, even if there is no water. <laughs> I want yet, to be right down in the middle of Whistler yeah, Village. Exactly. They're, like, they're not going to let you do that. That's not going to happen. <laughs> so I think, I think that's a good point. You know, so be honest, be be realistic, have patience, and uh, have twice as much money as you think. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of one of my wrap up questions that I like to ask is, how has owning a distillery changed how you've gone to bars or restaurants or liquor stores? I mean, we've you, stopped you, going to them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Right, because it's not it's not it's not a nice uh, night out. Are you looking behind the bar and like, wait, are we here? Where could we be here? You know, I'm really oh, yeah, I'm this really meal. looking forward to putting on some nice clothes and going out one yeah. night and having some cocktails. And I mean, we've been working really hard the last little while, and mm-hmm. it's going to be really nice, you know, to come through this last little while and come and sit and have a beautifully crafted cocktail. I feel like I'm covered in alcohol all the time, you know, like from <laughs> yeah. the mashing to the this, to the that, to the right. sales, to the pouring. And it's just the perspective on it has changed. Yeah, you, know? you definitely become more analytical of what everybody else has yeah. going on. And like, like, oh man, why, like, well, why, are why are you pouring they... that into my martini and not this one? Or, yeah, yeah. But yeah. that's where you start, you quickly start to realize that people do things, certainly within the liquor and the bar industry, that is so ingrained that they that's just oh this is who we order it from and that's what we order these people don't even know they want to change their minds and it might take you visiting those places more than a few times it's one of those things that you're going to have to chip away as the industry grows we'll slowly progress into making ways into these bars and things. It's so interesting, you know, you go in and do these sales calls and you talk to people and they've got a whole BC wine list and they've got craft beer, but their spirits are all still from far flung regions of the world. It's like the concept of localizing their hard bar hasn't even crossed their minds Mm. yet. How funny, that's so funny. Yeah, Why why is there that block about spirits? I don't know. It's really (laughs) interesting and I think it's a few different things. I think it's brand loyalty, but I think people have have just not actually considered where their spirits come from. I'm drinking vodka. Well, yeah. I, I mean, a lot of well, people. Doesn't just all vodka come from Russia? Yeah, it's potatoes. Russian, right? Exactly. <laughs> and, and, yeah. You know, my yeah. whiskey comes, comes from, from Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And like, people just whiskey have is these Irish. Scotch is from Scotland. Yeah, Scotland. Yeah, yeah, there like, we go. You're like, yeah, that's what these companies would maybe have you believe. You're talking about pretty much the biggest companies in the world. 
the amount of energy and money that they spend on marketing. Now, people, they often say that the true reason behind marketing is a subconscious thing. People are doing things very subconsciously, and certainly everything with the alcohol industry has been so status quo for so long right. that changing people's minds isn't that, oh my goodness, this is such a great idea. You know, there are those people that will be like, oh my God, you're local. The and early so adapters. Great. Mm-hmm. But then there's the other people that take a little bit more convincing. But once right. they are convinced, it's not a case of whether your products are as good or inevitably probably a lot better than what is out there. But it takes people time to adopt an idea for sure. I think so. to your question too, it's interesting because if you look at our craft products are very reasonably priced. We've tried to keep the prices okay. quite low because we'd rather sell a lot of them mm-hmm. than sell less at a higher price point. But if you look at a lot of the craft spirits out there, they're a lot more expensive. Absolutely. And so if you go to the liquor store and you look at a locally crafted vodka for $50 as opposed to a Grey Goose that is well-renowned mm-hmm. and very brand-recognized and this high-end vodka people are going to pick the gray goose. because It's like, it's I want to support local businesses, but woo, you're but, asking me to... But, and yeah, this is something I trust and it's something I that I like can it. afford. So it's almost like making the transition between generic foods and organic foods or mm-hmm. a regular beer or a craft beer. And so people just have to start switching their focus and switching their shopping. A lot of it too is that we consume less alcohol than we once w- did, but boy, do we drink better stuff. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> right. that's a big part of it. Is yeah, just- if we weren't allowed to, you know, there's lots of laws pertaining to how you're allowed to advertise and market your booze, but one of the things they really don't want you appealing to children right. at all, right? Yes, that and, makes but, sense. But having grown up in Europe, it's very much a case of even as a young person, you'll get introduced to this idea of wine or beer with dinner. And it's not this super ultra faux pas to have a sip and understand where it is coming from. Now, if there was one piece of advice to give to the younger drinking generation, all legally old enough to drink, it would be to scrap all that quantity and rubbish and buy the, yeah, buy the $12 cocktail. Yeah, if you're just that, turning 21 in the United States, don't order that. This whole, bad, this yeah. whole binge drinking right. thing, yeah. you know? Highballs and crazy things. <laughs> exactly. Like, don't you know, like, do it. It's a waste of time. So to that person who is perhaps drinking for the very first time or is reaching for a bottle of Gillespie's for the, or Gillespie's, if I know, Gillespie's <laughs> for the first time, what's one recipe you could recommend? Here's how someone should enjoy. Afro uh, old-fashioned. Afro old-fashioned. Wow, okay, go into yeah. that, please. That's amazing uh, sounding. Originally, Afro is a spicy drink because it's mostly chilies and, okay. and yep. it's like a spicy sweet mix going on. And so people go to bars and they'll often do Jaeger shots or Fireball. And, and we wanted yeah. something you could put in a hip flask that you could take on the winter ski slopes. It was like something you could drink neat that would be awesome and it wouldn't be sickly sweet Fireball or wouldn't be Jaeger. And what we've discovered after having made it is that it will actually replace a brown spirit in a lot of cocktails and then add a completely different dimension to that cocktail. There's vanilla in it, it's got cacao in it, it's got the spiciness, but depending on if you've mixed it down, the Mm -hmm. cacao kind of comes more forward on it and it adds this interesting element. So it's interesting how it will actually replace a whiskey in a cocktail and you wouldn't necessarily know that there wasn't any whiskey because obviously there's the other elements of the cocktail in there right, you know, right. but it's a spirit where you're like oh this has got other dimensions that you then start to so, pull so out walk me through thing. how would I make one of these uh, you probably take about three or four drops of Angostura bitters that okay. you can find just about anywhere so three or four drops of bitters and about half a teaspoon of either white sugar or raw sugar. And then you want to get your tap going ever so slightly so it's just dripping water and you want three or four drips huh. of water. Oh, interesting. And then you take your bar spoon and you mix it into a paste. And old fashions take a long time to make, so... 
<laughs> so, no simple syrup in this recipe. No, no gosh, no, not at all. <laughs> so you're whipping this sugar and water and huh. bitters together for a couple of minutes anyway. And then you add two ounces of the afro and then you dissolve, stir it until the sugar paste is dissolved. And then you don't, I don't, I don't stir it with the ice because the afro sits at a slightly lower proof. So you don't want to over stir it. Oh, okay. And then you want to take a nice big zest of orange and twist it over the top and twist it around the edge and finish with a real maraschino cherry. Wow. And that is an Afro old fashioned. <laughs> Sounds amazing. <laughs> where can people find you at? Where's the best way to track your brand, find out where you're being sold? Do you have a uh, website? Probably yeah, gillespiesfinespirits.com. Our social media is always pretty up to date. And Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, local bars and restaurants around Vancouver, Whistler, up to Whistler, yeah. out in South Surrey, Burnaby. But mainly private liquor stores and bars and restaurants. Like we don't really sell to the liquor board because of their prohibitively huge markup. Uh, and we ship all over BC. And we will, in the next couple of years, probably be in certain states, Alberta, and maybe a couple other provinces. Wow. Yeah. Very cool, guys. We always wanted to get into all the capitals, like New York, Tokyo, London, <laughs> yeah, Rome, sure. you know. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never know. Hey. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, you never like know. Like you said, yeah. starting here and now, uh, yeah, we have ambition. You have Absolutely. Goals. Yeah. Exactly. Always. So you never know where it will go. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both for your time and thanks for having me up here and talking with me for so long about Gillespie's and everything you make. Thank you very much. That's been awesome. Thanks, Zach. Appreciate it. <laughs>